0: Our scripture reading for this afternoon comes from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This is the word of the Lord
1: we're kind of wrapping up our series in talking about the values of Metro Presbyterian Church. And we do that in the beginning of the year, every year, as a, as a new church, to continue to share and remind one another what are values, these things that are core to our church and our community. And the book of Jonah teaches us to embrace the city, to love the city in a world that has different values, different lifestyles, Sometimes a world and a community that's hostile to Christianity. And so I'm going to give you a small, uh, a brief summary. Here's Jonah. He's a prophet, and he was called to preach to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, which was really, to date, the most powerful empire in the world. But instead of obeying God, in chapter 1, Jonah rose, it says, to flee away from God's presence, to flee away from God's call. And he gets on this ship and on this ship as it's heading away directly opposite of the direction that God was calling Jonah to go there's this big storm and the pagan sailors who understand when they should be worried on a ship they start to cast lots to see what's causing the storm and the lot falls on Jonah and Jonah knew Jonah knew that this he's the reason why that this storm has kind of come about and so Jonah goes to these pagan sailors and he asks them throw me overboard And the sea is going to calm down. And with hesitance and reluctance, eventually they throw Jonah overboard. And immediately the sea calms down. Jonah is now in the water. And this fish rises up. Famous story. We all probably at some point heard some figment of this story, this narrative. This fish swallows Jonah whole, takes him down to the depths of the sea. And there in chapter 2, we see Jonah's prayer, his prayer to God. And his prayer to God is a mixture, lots of confusion, but lots of uh, repentance and thanksgiving. It's all different types of psalms kind of mixed up in chapter 2. And God calls the fish up out of the sea and the fish vomits Jonah back onto the land. And Jonah now heads off. He hears the call of the Lord. He heads off now into Nineveh now and he preaches to them. And as he preaches to them, the king is convicted and the entire city is convicted in hearing what Jonah says. And if you imagine the president or the mayor today says, today there will be no more crime. Today it's not just a war on crime. There will be an end to crime. Once and for all, an end to violence, an end to these types of tragedies. It's going to end today. It's an amazing story if you think about it. The, entire, the king of Nineveh promises an end to this violence. The people come down, they repent, 120,000 of them, the whole lot of them. It's an amazing story, an amazing narrative. Jonah now, chapter 4, this is the aftermath. He's suffering. Not because he's a bad person, but actually because he's a good person. Because he's a noble person. He's a religious person. He's a prophet of God, but he's at odds with God. He's angry with God. He's arguing with God. If you see this text, he's really, he's God's reasoning with him. He's angry. He's arguing with God. And one of the things that we learn here is that the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is not something that we've created to satisfy our needs. Remember Karl Marx? Karl Marx says that, the re, that religion is the opiate of the masses. We, religion exists to satisfy the masses, to sedate them, to pacify them. Marx definitely did not read the book of Jonah. He couldn't have read the book of Jonah. A God that we've created could never have done what this God does with Jonah. Could never have done that. Here's here's Jonah arguing with God, reasoning with God, being challenged by God. A God that we created could never do that. And as a result, a God that we created could never change us, would never be able to change us, would never be able to challenge us, would never be able to save us, and would never be able to heal us. Jonah's angry, and, and you don't see God pounding on Jonah. You don't see God, you know, hammering Jonah. And you don't see God pitying Jonah either. You don't see God pitying Jonah nor hammering Jonah. Jonah's falling apart. He says, I'm angry enough to die. I'm angry enough to die. Come on. Everybody at some point in their lives has experienced that kind of deep anger. He's come undone. And so today we're going to learn three things, mainly about our anger or pride we're going to learn the symptoms of anger. We're going to learn the, the, uh, the root cause of our anger. And lastly, the healing of anger. The symptoms, the root cause, or the diagnosis, um, and the healing of our anger. First, the symptoms of our anger. We see this in verse 1. It says, Jonah was greatly displeased, and he became angry. In chapter 3, you see a little bit of that anger. Jonah preaches a very, very short sermon. Four words, I believe, in Hebrew. Seven words in the English language. He says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. One of the worst sermons ever. Completely ungracious. He says, in 40 days, this city will be overturned. In other words, what he's saying is, I want you to stop this evil. And they do. They do stop the evil. The entire city makes a commitment to end evil. This is something that, that leaders in any city would only pray, dream, or wish for. It's a beautiful story. It should have ended right there. It should have ended with that, maybe a parade. If you've ever seen Return of the Jedi, it should have ended with something like that where the brig parade at the end and everybody's celebrating and joyful because that would have been a beautiful ending, but it doesn't end that way. And that's why Jonah, this book, is so unique. It ends, this beautiful narrative, ends with Jonah a religious man, a prophet of God, a good man, a noble man, and he's angry. The text says he's exceedingly angry. He's over the top. The actual words in Hebrew, so when he said he's exceedingly angry, it's, it's with the connotation that God has done evil here. God has done wrong. Why? Verse 2 explains it. He says, I knew it. I knew you'd be this way. I knew you'd be compassionate. I knew you'd be gracious. I knew you'd be slow to anger, abounding in love. I knew you'd be this way, and I don't get it. I don't understand. Do you know who these people are? Do you know what they've done to your people, what they're threatening to do to your people? Don't you get it? Don't you know who they are? Don't you get the cost of what you're doing? Don't you know that these people owe a debt to you? And he's angry. Where is the justice? Where is the law here? When God says that he's promised grace, he says, I knew you'd do this. He's actually quoting what's really printed in Exodus chapter 34 in your Boltons. The call to worship in Exodus chapter 34, verses five to seven. He says that I, the Lord, the Lord, am compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. Then he goes on and he says that I will not let a single sin go unpunished. In other words, I'm a just God and a merciful God. I'm a just God. Jonah's saying, I see the mercy. Where is the justice? Where is the justice? I don't see the law. Where is the law? I don't get this. You said you'd be just. Where is it? You're supposed to punish the wicked. Here, Nineveh is supposed to pay the cost. But you're just this all-loving God, and I don't see the cost. I don't see the justice. Jonah is struggling in many ways, with what many of us struggle with. And you may say, you know, I don't struggle with this, but I'm going to show you we all struggle with this. Jonah's struggling with, I understand that God is a God of justice. How can a God of justice also be a God of mercy? I understand that God is all-loving, compassionate. How can a God who's all-loving be just? I can understand being either or, either just and angry, and wrathful, or loving, and compassionate, and gracious? How can he be both? He's saying, God, you're supposed to, I understand you're a God of love. Where's the justice? Now, it's easy to say, God is gracious and just, until you experience injustice in your life, and you see the unjust prosper. It's easy to see that until you see injustice in your own life and that injustice go unpunished. Because in your heart, deep within the soul, we say somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay. And Jonah's conflicted. And he's angry and he's confused. He said, God, you told me to preach to them and I preached to them, didn't I? I preached justice. Where's the justice? I don't get it. Here are the symptoms of anger. Verse 1, displeasure. You want to know the symptoms? Verse 1, there's displeasure. Verse 2, he's confused and resigned. So you have this displeasure combined with confusion because you don't understand the different qualities and the character of God, and you're confused by God. And as a result, there's this general corrosion of the soul. Verse 3, he says, I am angry enough to die. This corrosion of the soul, the anger just eats you up. There's this deep grumbling of the soul, this deep complaining of the heart, and it goes so deep. You're questioning God's love. You're questioning God's presence. You're questioning his justice. You're confused, and it corrodes your soul, and you yeah. say, you know what? I don't care. I'm just I'm, I'm angry enough to die. Really what Jonah is saying is, I understand what you're doing. I knew it. I knew you'd be this way. I just don't agree. I would never do it this way. My, in all my wisdom, I would never do it this way. And that's what's killing him. That's what's killing Jonah. It says that Jonah goes off to the east. And uh, remember Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3. Adam and Eve, they're driven out of the Garden of Eden. In their sin, in their distance from God, they're driven out of the Garden of Eden. They're they're taken where? East. East of Eden. To be east represents that you're distant from God. And if Jonah's anger... If Jonah's anger can corrode his heart, and this is a noble man, this is a righteous man, this is a prophet of God, this is a religious person, this is a church-going, seminary-attending person, then our anger can corrode our souls. And why? A flawed application of God's love and justice. That's the diagnosis, really, of all spiritual downturns. Your spiritual economy, the economy in your soul is based on a flawed interpretation or or representation or understanding of God's love and his justice. Let me explain that a little bit because this is the reason why we have such a hard time respecting other people in our lives genuinely. We're loving other people genuinely, especially those who we don't believe deserve care or love or grace or forgiveness. And so we mock them. And we, we mutter under our breath about them. And we judge them. We want to just tear their eyes out. That's really what we want to do deep inside. Especially people who are different from us. We judge them. Deep inside, you know what we're doing? We're still competing with other people for God's love. The reason why we want to scratch people's eyes out, even if they've wronged us, the reason why we, want to, we, we judge them and we mock them, because they're different, simply by virtue of the fact that they may be different than us or think differently or live differently than us, it's because we're still competing with other people for God's love in our hearts. We say, I would never live like that. I would never do that. I would never make decisions like that person. I would, ne- I would do it differently than these people. I would live differently than these people. And it's why also we're so quick to be defensive. When you're defensive, the anger comes out. The judgment comes out. It's why we're so quick to cover over any flaws that we have, we live every week, we're building up a resume to present to one another to show people what? That I'm okay. It's why we're constantly blaming other people for our wrongs or things that have gone on in our lives, mistakes that we may have made or things that we're suffering perhaps. It's, so, it's why we're so quick to highlight the flaws of other people or to mock other people, why we can't own up to our own sins, rationalize our flaws, while we magnify the flaws of other people. Every self-righteous act in our lives, every prejudice, every hint of racism in our lives, every moment that we gossip with other people in the church, it's an act of competing with other people, competing against other people for God's love. Look at Jonah. He's conflicted and he's angry. He's in the fish. In the fish. If you read chapter 2, beautiful psalm or hymn. In the fish, he cries, I'll never do it again. Salvation is of the Lord. And then, salvations of the Lord, Nineveh. it all that anger, it comes back. It all comes back. He never gets over it. The anger, is, in, in a sense, consumed him. He says, I'm angry enough to die. Those are the symptoms. You got displeasure. The displeasure leading to confusion and resignation. He said, oh, I knew you'd be this way. And that leading to a, just a general corrosion of the soul, beginning with complaining and grumbling to a deep anger, exceeding over-the-top anger. Now, what's the cause? What's the root cause of any of our anger? Whether you're angry at your spouse, whether you're angry at your children, angry or blaming your professor because of, because of things that are going wrong, what's the root cause? When the anger comes back, you need to examine yourself. What's at the heart? What's at the root? Because at the center of all of our blaming, the center of all of our self-righteousness, the center of all of our mocking and our judgment of other people, and here it is, ultimately what it is, there's something inevitably more important to us as opposed to God. There's something that's inevitably more important to us that's either been threatened or lost or challenged. For example, when it's threatened, something that's inevitably more important than God, when it's challenged, we get ang- anxious. When it's threatened, we get anxious. anxious. When it's lost, we're in despair. We get angry. Our heart our heart has gone bad. What's at the root of Jonah's anger? In verse 3, he says, Take away my life because it's better for me to die. In chapter 2, he's praising God. Just two chapters away, he's praising God. Chapter 4, he's angry to death. How do you explain that kind of conflicted heart? Because we all have that. We all experience that in a given day. You have confusion on one end, clarity in the next. You have anger on one end, love the next. Right? How do you explain that confliction? Look at Jonah. He's so dissatisfied with the situation. And knowing that God is simply just there speaking to him doesn't help him. Knowing that God is present doesn't help him. I've talked to so many people, even in the past two weeks, who are suffering or angry or anxious. Just knowing that God is present, that alone doesn't help. And it tells us this. You can't come to God simply because he fulfills you. He does fulfill you. There are lots of times when he'll fulfill you. But he won't fulfill you all the time. I mean, clearly, you see this in the book of Jonah. He doesn't fulfill you all the time. I'm a pastor. Trust me. Loving Christ, knowing God, is not always fulfilling. Not all the time. You come to God because he's real. You come to God because his word is true. What's at the root of Jonah's unhappiness? Verse 2. He says, I know you are. Are abounding in love. And that word, love that he's using there, is a very, very particular word. It's the word said. He said. It's a Hebrew word that's only used to describe God's love for his people. It doesn't go the other way back. Our, the people's love for God. It's an unfailing, undivided love that only God can have for his people. And Jonah's saying, I know that you are abounding in an unfailing love. He says, I know you're forgiving. I knew you'd spare them. That's just who you are. You're gracious and you're compassionate. But come on, not them. Those people, not them. They don't deserve this. Anybody but them. And how do you know that? What's at the core of Jonah's, the root cause of Jonah's anger? He says, take away my life. Before I see them get saved, I'd just rather die. Take away my life. Now, when anyone says, I'd rather die than live, what they're saying is this. What gave my, my life meaning, what gave my life purpose, what gave me worth in life has been taken away from me. My life no longer has any meaning. My life no longer has worth. My life is over. I'd rather die. I might as well be dead. Think about it. Jonah is looking at the only source of true meaning, and he's saying, I've lost meaning. He's looking at the only source of true power, and he says, I've lost power. He said, I lo-, he's looking at the only source of, of any type of uh, worth in his life, and he's saying, I've lost worth. Something else has become more important to, to Jonah than God himself. Something else has become more important. Something else has took the place of God in Jonah's life than God. For us, simple, we can make a list. You can make a list in your own life, right? You could say, well, it could easily be when your spouse takes the place of God in your life. Then when you get into an argument with your spouse, at that moment, meaning gets threatened. Happiness gets threatened. Joy gets threatened. And when you've lost your spouse, your life has lost meaning. Today is an interesting day for me, February 22nd. It is the memorial of my father's death. My father died when I was about five years old. He was actually, in many ways, taken from my family. He was murdered uh, right by Temple University uh, when I was five years old. And uh, it's amazing when you live and you grow up uh, with a family that is uh, in a family where um, I've I've seen my mom grow up without a husband in a tragic way, losing your husband, your spouse, tragically. Well, you're not prepared, inadvertently. Now, she's just been in the country for about four and a half years, and, and uh, her husband is gone, lost. And what happens? There's a, you see the anger. You see the resentment. You, see, you can see the bitterness. You can see that. What's, what's going to heal that? Because the thing that has taken place of God in your life, when you lose it, you can easily fall into despair or anger. When it's threatened, when your children are sick, There's nothing you can do. And you know that at some point in time, your children have taken the place of God in your life because when there's nothing you can do and you start getting angry about it, there's nothing that you can do and there's like a sense of hopelessness and a deep sorrow that hits your soul, there's nothing you can do because you have no control over it. When your child gets bullied in school, I don't know how many of us have children who have been bullied but let's say you have a child that gets bullied in school. That anger, because you, you, there's, what, there's only so much you can do. And it's so systemic. It's the anger that comes up. Why? Because something that you love so deeply has been threatened. And when it gets threatened, we get anxious. When it's lost, we get angry or we're in despair. What's at the root of Jonah's unhappiness? Because he says, take away my life. It's better for me to die than live. He's telling God, there's no reason left for me to live. For Jonah, really, it was the security of his people. Jonah is the only prophet in the entire Bible, the, the, the entire Old Testament, that was called to preach to a people that were not his own. He's the only prophet in the Old Testament that was called to preach to another country outside of himself, outside of his own people. And so he's thinking about his people and the security of his people, the security of his country. And he knew that these people are going to come and ransack. Eventually, they do at one point. They ransack his country. And he knows what's being held back. His heart is holding on to something so dear to him. And it's become of greater worth than God. And it becomes the root of his spiritual demise, why he's coming undone, why he's so angry. There's such a deep-rooted anger. And, and remember, there, there are people who say, yes, I worship God. But what they're really saying is, I will serve God as long as he fulfills me. I will serve God as long as he meets my needs. And when those needs no longer are met, what happens? Resentment. Questioning whether God is really there. Resentment, anger, rebellion. I know God is there, but we say that all the time. Well, I know God's there, but what we're really saying is God's presence, knowing that God is present, has become irrelevant to me. God has forgotten me. God has abandoned me. At least it feels that way. So I have chosen in many ways to abandon God. I've chosen to become distant with God. A lot of us feel that way, especially when things that are dear to us, important to us, have been taken away or lost. Because when those needs are no longer met, what we're saying is, God has stopped fulfilling me. And so there's rebellion and anger. In 1984, there's this movie, one of my favorite movies of all time, called Amadeus, uh, it's Academy Award winner for Best Picture. And it's really the story of Mozart, kind of a fictional story, and at the same time, a biopic at the same time. So it's set in this premise of an asylum. You have this priest visiting Salieri, who was a famous composer, actually, in his day, but he lived during the time of Mozart. And the priest begins, uh, because this man has gone mad. He's, he's absolutely crazy. And he goes to this man, Salieri, because this man claims to have murdered Mozart, killed Mozart, he says. And so uh, this priest, he wants abs- absolution for his sins, basically. So this priest is talking to Salieri. And he wants to get to the heart. Why is he so, why does he believe, why does he hate Mozart so much? Why does he believe that he's killed Mozart? And Salieri says, ah, let me show you. And he starts to play this tune. And he plays this tune. He says, do you recognize this tune? And, and the priest says, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't recognize this tune. He says, "Ah, let me play you another one. Surely you must remember this one. And he plays another one of his pieces, very simple piece. And the priest says, I'm sorry, I I don't know this piece either. And he says, okay, well, let me play you another one. He thinks about it and says, okay, I got another one for you. And he plays and he goes, dun dun, 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 dun. Am I off key? Am I off tune on this? Right? So then, uh, then the, the priest says, Yes, yes, that's a beautiful piece. He starts to play along. He starts to sing along and hum the tune with him. He says, My gosh, I didn't know you wrote that piece. And the man says, no, I didn't. That was Mozart. And, and so he goes on and talks about how angry he was. Why is he angry? Because all his life, Salieri committed his life to God. His all I ever wanted was to sing praise to God, to write beautiful pieces for God. And in return, all I ever wanted was for him to make me this great composer so that I could continue to write beautiful songs for God. Is that wrong? And when, but instead, God chose this, this evil man basically he saw Mozart Mozart was he, he says yes you know Mozart this infantile boastful lustful smutty boy you've chosen this person to honor this boy he says from now on I could declare you are unjust you are unfair you are unkind and I will block you he says I swear it I will block you and it drives him mad it drives him mad with anger in chapter 4, Jonah is preaching, and he heads out east. And he heads out east, and he's just waiting to see what's happening. Because remember, the king in chapter 3, he gets down. He calls the entire city, and the entire city is repenting. And his king takes off his robe, the symbol of royalty. He, takes it, he casts it off, and he basically gets down, and they're all repenting. And Jonah goes out because he knows what God's going to do. God's going to forgive them. He goes out onto this hill, and he waits to see what happens. And what happens? This scorching wind, according to cha- chapter 4, this scorching wind comes, and Jonah wants to die because of this wind. It is so hot. It is so hot and angry. It feels like Philadelphia at, like, late July. And then, it's, and then this vine comes. This vine comes and grows above Jonah and gives him shade. The Hebrew word for that vine is the word etz. Very particular word because you see that word throughout the Old Testament. You see it in the garden in Genesis chapter 2 when God says, do not eat of this tree. That word tree in Hebrew is etz. He says later on, Noah, I want you to build this ark and I want you to build it using this wood, this wood, the cedar wood. That word wood is aids. He says later on, Absalom, later on in the kingdom, further down the road, David is now the king over Israel, and there's a civil war going on. His own son, Absalom, has conspired to kill his father. And they're at war. And how do they find out who this mole is in their country? They're trying to find who the conspirator in the country is. And what happens? Absalom's riding, and his hair gets caught in this branch. Absalom was known to have beautiful hair. His hair gets caught in the branch And he falls and all of a sudden everybody kills him why because there is this prophecy or this teaching that he who hangs on a tree is cursed that word for branch that word for the garden the tree at the garden or the ark the wood that made up the ark the tree that absalom hung on is the word eights and it's always with representation of the curse this vine Hebrew word eats is growing above Jonah. And he's looking out at the people and he says, Yes, I get the shade. Because the judgment of God is gonna come. He has answered my prayer. There's gonna be judgment. And it says, Jonah was happy about that vine. But what happens? Because Jonah's saying, Now I have relief. The judgment's gonna come. This worm comes up and eats the vine. And Jonah wants to die. And Jonah's angry about the vine. This anger is so corrosive. This tree grows over him. And you've got to remember, the tree is growing over him. The people are repenting. These people are repenting in Nineveh. And what happens? There, the tree dies. That vine dies. God, at the hint of repentance, just at the hint of repentance, takes away the judgment. Just a gesture of people moving towards God. And God relents. God takes away judgment. And the people are repenting, and God doesn't punish them, and Jonah is tormented. He's angry. What's the root cause of our anger? It's when something that we hold in our hearts as greater than God. And the Bible says, everybody, the nature of sin is not so much that we've done bad things. The nature of sin is we just hold things of greater importance than god and it controls us it's in our children it's in our love for our children it's in our love for our careers our careers have taken over our lives it's in our love for wealth none of us lie in a bed of money and do make angels snow angels in bed none of us do that with our money right the love for money, the love for our wealth, our greed is so much more subtle and it's nuanced. It controls us. We make decisions around it, around our wealth, around a desire for wealth, desire for prosperity and prosperous living. It could be for the religious. It could be just the community being looked upon well, having a good reputation. It could be for ministers who just love their church. These are good things. Jonah was a good man, a noble man, a religious man. Why did God choose a prophet to teach us about anger. It means that if good, noble, religious people can be this angry, anybody, everybody has anger. Everybody can be angry. That's the root cause. What's the cure? Because we talked about the symptoms, displeasure leading to uh, confusion and resignation, leading to great, exceeding anger, corrosion of the soul. And we said that the root cause is because it's something that we hold that's so much more important than God in our lives all the time. And anytime time we do that, the soul starts to corrode. What's the cure? Look at God. God here, he's so patient. Look at the loving kindness of God. He's counseling Jonah. Not once do you see him raising his voice. Not once do you see him pounding Jonah or hammering Jonah. I mean, this is one of his prophets. Not once do you see him hammering Jonah. He reasons with Jonah. He speaks to Jonah, mostly questions. I mean, mainly he says, Jonah, do you have a right to be this angry? Do you have a right to be angry? I'm convinced. We don't really know who the author of this book is. I'm personally convinced that it has to be Jonah. Why? Because somebody must have lived to tell this story. Somebody must have lived. I mean, this book is not a legend. This book is history. This is not fiction. And so either Jonah lived to write it himself or told somebody else about it so that they could write it. But either way, this had to, this happened. This is news. And the beautiful part about this book is Jonah isn't a hero. The religious guy isn't a hero here. In those days, you never write fiction. You never write fictional biographies like this. You never write stories. Have you ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh? Have you ever read the story of Nana and Osiris and Isis? If you read any of these stories, ancient tales are not written like this. It's too boring. The details here are too boring, too mundane. That type of literary, genre did not exist until probably the last 150 years or so. So we know that this is news. We know that these details are intentional. We know that this is is history that's being written here. I believe it had to have been Jonah or somebody that Jonah had spoken to. Because look at the prayer in the fish. Who could have told that prayer? Who could have written that prayer out? That had to have been so Jonah knew closely or Jonah knew Jonah himself, but either way, why was it there? Because he's saying, "Really, look at me. Look at how foolish I am. Look at me. I was a fool. Look at, how entit- look at my entitlement, my sense of it, "I'm so proud, I'm so angry, and look at how corroded my soul was. And I'm a religious person. I'm a good person. Yet look at how gracious and loving and patient and just merciful God is. Look at the character of God. Look at the love of God. Look at the compassion of God. He could have wiped me out and saved those guys in Nineveh. But instead, on one hand, he relents from calamity in Nineveh. And he's just speaking to me because he wants both of us back. That's what he wants. He just desires both of us to know his heart. Will you plunge your pride? Let go of your rival gods. You have to do that. All the gods that are competing with God, will you let that go? And plunge the deepest roots of your anger into the grace of God. You know what's going to flourish? It's going to flourish like that vine that's not going to bring judgment, but peace and love and relief and comfort and compassion. God asks Jonah two times, do you have any right to be angry? Jonah responds. The second time he says, I do. I do have a right to be angry. Can you believe this? This is amazing. Chapter two, Jonah got the fish and he's praying. He says, He's praying. He says, now I get it, Lord. Now I get it. Salvation only. It's all about grace. Salvation comes from the Lord. And then he enters Nineveh and he sees the evil in Nineveh. He's walking through the streets of Nineveh and he sees just the, 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 just the ugliness of this city and it all comes back. And on one hand, in the fish, he says, it's all about grace. And now as he's walking through Nineveh and he sees the lifestyles of these godless people, it becomes all about works. And he says, and God asks, do you have any right to be angry? And Jonah says, I do. Now, Jonah must have been healed because this book has to be the evidence. How are we healed? How do you get healed? Jonah is gripped by the cost How can a God be just and merciful? I get that you are loving. How can you be just? Somebody must pay. God is gracious and just, but how? Because I don't see the justice. Where is the justice? You're just going to let them go? That's justice because if that's justice, evil wins. That means you have no right to be angry if somebody gets raped. That's close to you. You have no right to be angry because that's just the way it is. Evil's going to win in the end. You may be angry. Then we have—we all have a right to be angry. We will all die in our anger. It's either you have no right to be angry, right? Because ultimately, that's the way it is. And you can be just as evil, or be—we have every right to be angry. But justice will lose. How can be God? How can God be both merciful and just? How do you reconcile the two? And God is so patient. God is so patient. He says, "Look at this city. They don't know their right from their left." Should I not love them? Should I not love this great city? This great city that does not know their right from their left? Should I not have compassion on this great city? What he's really saying to Jonah is, Jonah, I'm being patient. I'm being patient. Will you be patient with me? And will you be compassionate while my patience is there? In Luke chapter 19, Jesus Christ is looking out at the city of Jerusalem And it says here that he wept over that city. He's just weeping over Jerusalem. And here's what he says in Luke 19. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, because you did not recognize God. Mainly what he's saying is, like Jonah, he's saying, pretty soon, this city is going to be overturned. But unlike Jonah, he's not judging the city. He's weeping. He says, if you, only you. In other words, this, this is emotional. In the Hebrew, whenever you see a doubling related to a person he's calling you out he says you only you he's weeping he's emotional he's crying for the city and he says this city is going to be overturned but he's not crying in anger he's crying with compassion i mean you don't think that jesus christ is angry you don't think the wrath of god is present and yet he says i'm going to relent i'm just weeping for the city I'm we- you've been rebellious against the king. You've betrayed the king. You've been violent. You've been wicked. You've been evil. You've neglected God. You've run from God. You don't even acknowledge God. You're not thankful for God. And yet I'm weeping for you. I'm grieved by that. Well, if only you would return, he says. Jonah is grieved at the salvation of the wicked. But Jesus, he's grieved at the judgment of the wicked. He says, one day you're going to be judged. And he's weeping. Jonah came to bring judgment. Jesus, he came to bear judgment. That's why Jesus is the greater Jonah. That's what's going to melt your heart. Jonah, he wants to bring judgment. Jesus, he wants to bear it. He says, the night before he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jonah says, I'm angry enough to die. Jesus says, I'm sorrowful enough to die. I'm going to take it all. At the time, he's thinking about the cross. He's thinking about the judgment that will not fall on the city, but on him. And he's thinking about the city. He's weeping about the city. He's thinking about his people. And he says, I, he's thinking about all that will happen to him. He's going to be consumed. The wrath of God will fall on him. He's going to be consumed. And he says, I am sorrowful to the point of death. And yet, he obeyed. Not a hint of anger. He says, God, your will be done. That's what's going to melt your heart. Jesus, before he was arrested, praying for the people who's going to betray him, praying for the evil of the world, and grieving, genuinely grieving and compassionate for evil, knowing that he will pay the price. On the cross, what happens to him? On the cross, the punishment, the punishment of our wickedness, the punishment that our wickedness deserved, the punishment that the wickedness of the Ninevites deserved was poured on him. He got punished. Jesus got the punishment that we deserved. On the cross, he said, I have come undone. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm undone. My soul, my whole person has become corroded. God has poured his wrath out on me, and he, I have become irrelevant to him. I have been abandoned by him. I have been rejected by him. I have been forsaken, completely forsaken. The wrath of God is poured on me. I have lost the one person that I hold of supreme value. The one person that I hold of supreme worth. The one person that I hold as of greatest worth in my life is God. No one greater than God. Supreme value in my life. And yet, I have become irrelevant. I have no meaning. I have no worth. Nothing. The worm came and ate the judgment of God. Why? Because the wrath of God would fall on, on Christ. Jesus suffered the full heat. Jonah said, I'm hot. I'm angry. I'm dying here. Jesus suffered the full wrath, the cosmic wrath of God. He said, I'm hot. The wrath, the anger of God is on me, and I'm dying. I'm being consumed. Jonah's outside the city. Jesus crucified outside the city. Jonah's distant from God. Jesus says, my God, my God, I've been forsaken. Not because I disobeyed, but because I obeyed. Because of his love. Because of his grace. Because of his compassion. Look at the compassion of Christ. Look at the patience of Christ. When you see the patience of God through Christ and what he has done through Christ for you, will you look at another person and say, that person deserves judgment? That person deserves to die. You know, when we gossip about somebody, we're murdering their reputations. We're destroying their reputations. We're destroying them. Because in your heart, what happens is there's this anger that's inside and you want to pour it out and you're looking for a way to pour it out. and You want to look for the best way. Generally, the human heart wants to do it the best way possible. Sometimes the best way to do it is to walk away from the person altogether because if I ignore them, they're just going to be broken inside because they want to reconcile with me. So if I walk away, they will die. They will be consumed. But other times we say, if I pour out, if I, if I pour out and retaliate, oh, then they will be consumed. Or if I gossip and subversively destroy them, they will be consumed. We will choose the best way to do it or a combination. Sometimes it's a combo meal. We'll do it in the best way possible. But when you look at the patience of Christ, when you look at the patience of God towards us in Christ on the cross, even on the cross, people are pelting him with rocks. They're mocking him. They're pouring out judgment. Everything that we would want to do in another person. And you know what Jesus says? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know the right hand from the left. That's what Jesus is saying. That's amazing. That's the heart of God. That's going to melt your heart. You can't be hammered into God's love. You can't be hammered into forgiving another person. You can't be guilted. It's not going to last. The anger will come back. When you see the love of Christ for you, demonstrated on the cross for you, interceding even now, rooting for you, praying for you, the Spirit actively working in you, speaking into you through his word, will you have patience? And not just have patience, will you go where you wouldn't want to go? Will you do what you wouldn't want to do? Will you listen to the call of God in a way that you never would have listened to the call of God? You know, in John chapter 21, after Peter recognizes how forgiven by God he is, Jesus says, one day somebody else will dress you and lead you to places you do not want to go. That's Christian maturity. To be utterly patient, utterly led Not leading. Oh, we think a good Christian is somebody who gets up and leads. It's to be led. The more you're led, the more meek, the more humble, the more how much you recognize your brokenness, let that be the source of your leadership. Let that be the source of your growth. Let that be the source of all of your forgiveness of other people. Will you be able to do that? Remember Christ on the cross saying, forgive them. It's not enough just to know that God is present but to know that God took the hit for you. Will that melt your heart? Then you will be able to love others genuinely. Then you will forgive them. Then you'll even be willing to walk with them. Friends, will you do that? We need to do that. As a body, when you have a whole community of people doing that, you know, one person doing that may not change a lot of people. But when you have a whole body of people doing that, for a group of people that they have very little connection with, such as in this city, that's what changes communities. What community would not want a church on their corner like that? Let's pray.